I get to continue in 1 Peter 4. Uh, we're going to be in cha- uh, verse 7 through 11. Um, I am thankful for the word, that the word is very clear today. There is not much room uh, for conjecture. And I will run from my opinion and conjecture very hard here. Um, the word is very clear. And anytime that you have therefores, amen, right? Anytime you have because, amen. Um, imperatives, you know the difference between imperatives and indicatives. Indicatives are things already done. Imperatives are things that we must do, right? Today is full of indicative. I'm a person that grew up in... Um, my heart, my tendency was to legalism. Anybody else agree? Uh, the danger here in legalism is you create that little checkbox and you're like, as long as I can check these off every day, um, then I'm good. That's moralism and I cannot do that. And imperatives lead my heart sometimes to just think of the checkboxes. If I could do this, do this, do this, do this, then I'd be okay. Um, and so I tried very hardly to cling to the indicatives, the things that are already done. The gospel of Jesus Christ, it's done. It's an indicative. It's what God has accomplished through the personal work of Jesus on our behalf. The gospel is not something that we must do. The gospel is a glorious, it's already been done. We're going to see that connection today in the imperatives exist because the indicative is already implied. The indicative is the gospel, redemption, and salvation is complete and finished in the person and work of Jesus. So we as believers, as we turn from looking to the outside to looking to the inside here, within the body of the church, as we've gone through 1 Peter, we're looking internally now to the church, light in the desert, What are the things that we must do because what has been done cannot separate those two? If we separate them, you and I will be moralistic. We'll think that salvation is by our own hand and how far from the truth can we go? But if we remain connected to the gospel, indicatives are healthy for us. Why? Because they tell us how we can glorify God. To him be glory, power, and dominion forever and ever and ever. Amen. That's how he ends. Peter will end in verse 11 with that same conclusion. So let's go to that end. This is all for the glory of God, right? Okay, here we begin. Last week, Peter dealt with final judgment. Did anybody catch that? Verse 5 but they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. There are two responses to that. You can be indifferent or you can be like, oh my. Indifferent would lead you to believe that it's not true. There will not be a final judgment. There are people that do not believe that there will be a final judgment. So foundationally, do we believe that there will be a final judgment? Will there be a day of the quickening? Yes. We believe that there will be God the judge, God the Father, and that we will have to give an account. There will be a final judgment. None of what we read through 711 makes sense unless there's a final judgment. So that's the first place. We also dealt with death and resurrection, verse 6. Verse 6 of Peter says this, for this is why the gospel was preached, even to those who are dead, that the, though judged in the flesh, they, 
the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. There will be death and there will be resurrection. So it's not surprising that verse seven begins and opens with the end of history. Verse seven begins with in time ethics. How are we to live and respond to the end times? So Peter begins with 1 Peter 4, 7, the end of all things is at hand. We've become numb sometimes in reading the scripture that we don't say and stop and go, oh my. But if you and I, the first time that you're reading this and you get to this, you should pause and say what's coming next is very important. The end of all things is at hand. The end of some things, the end of all things is at hand. Do you believe that there will be an end time? Or will life just continue like this in perpetuity? There are some believe that we live and die and the next generation to the next generation to the next generation to the next generation. Do we believe in the con- consummation of all things that there is another age to come, heaven and earth, ruled by the sovereign and good ruling reign of God the Father, Jesus his Son, and the Spirit. Those who are outside the church, outside those who've been brought under the gospel, do not believe this day is coming. If they did believe this day is coming, they would repent and believe and their faith would be found in the person and work of Jesus Christ. They would see their sin. They would see the problem with a holy God and remaining sin. They would see that they cannot become righteous One, because of Adam's sin. Second, because of their own sin. That they can't become good enough to merit the relationship of the Father, Son, and Spirit. And they would cry out for need. And the word would resound with, find the answer in Christ. In his death and resurrection. That there's a substitutionary death by another that can make you right and bring you unto him. But there are people outside of the gospel who do not believe that there will be an end of all things, that Christ will return and this will be put to an end. But do we? And there are people, I believe, who are warming pews today who don't believe this. But we must start with Agreeing with Peter, there is an end of all things. So what does Peter mean by the end of all things? Does this mean when Peter is saying this to the first hearers that he believes like today, right now, that this is coming? I would say no. The reason I would say no is because this is probably written before the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. And so he knows that there's some things. Peter walked with the Lord and he knows that there are some things that have yet to happen. But he sees the beginning of things happening because he's seen Pentecost. He knows that the gospel is going to the ends of the earth. He sees the work of Pauline ministry as it's, as it's going out. He sees the Spirit of God on display. He sees the wars. And what have we been talking about all through First Peter? 
the persecution and the suffering and the destruction of the church. And he's saying, I'm seeing the things that, that my Savior told us about. And so, I mean, the next few things could usher in. But what he is not telling you to do is to pull out a timeline or a calendar and circle a date. It's not what he's saying. He's not saying, oh, go eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow you die. Luther was posed with a question. I loved reading Luther on this because Luther was posed with, what would you do if you knew it was the end of the age today? He says, I'll plant a tree and pay my taxes for that's what I have on the calendar tomorrow. For Christians, like, what's to follow in 7 through 11 is not some masterful, different strategy. It is normal Christian ethics. So I don't believe Peter's like, hey, it's coming, so we should bunker down and like prepare for a tribulation or like he doesn't go through this and like this is what we shouldn't assimilate or like he goes through like, hey, we're going to live as if today is it matters. Here are the things that we will focus on until he comes. And I think it's a good word for us today as well. Yes. Because the temple has been destroyed. I believe that what Peter means by the end of all things is he knows that Christ has already accomplished the big thing. And the next thing is for him to return. The next mark in history is Christ's return. It's not your work schedule on Monday. The next big thing to occur in all of history is his return. We mark our calendar by Christ activity. Not a doctor's appointment Monday, like Christ is going to return, end of all things. This is good news for us, and I really am happy because, therefore, because, like it spells it out perfectly for us, we know what we should do. Before we begin the text today, do you believe that there is an end of all things? Do you believe that it is near? Does your belief or unbelief inform your life? Ooh. Does your belief in the end is near inform your life? Doctrine influences orthopraxy. Orthodoxy informs orthopraxy, life. Your actions are the ultimate revealer of what you truly believe. So if you believe the end is near, look at your life. That's what Peter helps us to do here. God did not leave our response to this truth to our imagination. Thank you. He, by the Spirit, guided Peter to give us imperatives, things we must do in light of this truth. The time of your persecution and suffering are very short. I believe that's also what he's saying here. He's gone through this suffering. Like, don't be surprised when you experience fiery trials. Like, don't be surprised. And then also, don't dwell in them. The end of all things is near. Like, this is short. We've been studying now. Uh, we've, both groups have gone through characters, characteristics of God, the character of God, and have talked about eternity. Our days are short. Our life is short. The suffering we experience now cannot be compared to what? The glory which to be revealed. 
So it's very good news for us. Let's go to the word, 1 Peter 4, 7 through 11. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, pull out your list. Be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies. In order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray real quick. Lord, I pray that we would uh, do this text uh, much justice and we would leave here uh, full of energy and strength and boldness uh, to live sober-minded and self-controlled lives for the sake of our prayer. I pray that we would love earnestly, constantly. And Lord, that we would look past the sins of our brothers and sisters. Lord, I pray that we would use our gifts both in speaking and in service as varied graces of your hands and we'd give you glory because of the gifts that you've given each one of us. Lord, that you might be on display and you might receive glory, power, and dominion forever. Lord, that is our prayer today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. He starts off with prayer. The reason the end is near is that the ministry, death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ have inaugurated the last days. We could go to 1 Corinthians, we could go to 1 John, we could go to several different places to find agreement in biblical um, theology of all the different places that would echo the end is near. In the New Testament, the theme of the end of history is imminent and often sounded. It's over and over. Even Jesus talked about the end times over and over and over. Whether it be in Matthew, Romans, 1 Corinthians, Philippians, Thessalonians, Peter does it often as well. Nowhere does the New Testament ever tell us or invite us to withdraw because the end is near. In fact, every time that the scripture talks about the end times, it, there's action and engagement for us to go and do. There's activity for us to do. Our, our life is not to bunker down because Jesus has come and we're just waiting on his return. No, we're supposed to be out and living. Doesn't mean that we're supposed to assimilate and that we're supposed to take on the character of the world. In fact, it's going to say that we should be sober-minded and we should do things for the sake of our prayer, that we should think dig- diligently about the world and what's going on around us for the sake of our prayer. So because of that, the Testament never tells us to look to the gaze to the skies hoping the Lord will return soon. And the imminence of the end should function as a stimulus for us to go and be active in this world. The knowledge that believers are sojourners and exiles, um, faithful exiles, sojourners and exiles, leads us to the place that we know that time is short and it should galvanize in us a life that counts now. Do you believe that your life matters? That what you do counts and it matters and it has an effect. You might think that what follows is an extraordinary response of of Christian virtues that you should live out, but I would suggest that they're normal virtues of a Christian. And we see a a transition from talking about our engagement with the world to our engagement within the church. Peter summons his readers to be clear-minded and self-controlled. 
these two actions, I believe, are tangled together. They are the both the same. We are clear-minded and we are self-controlled. They're verbs. Be clear-minded. Be self-controlled. They're synonymous and should be understood together. And the word pray is attached to both of those verbs. Be clear-minded. Pray. Be sober-minded. Pray. So what are we supposed to do? The, the verbs are to help us and inform us to the the word pray. The nearness of the end has led some believers to lose their head or act irrationally. Have you witnessed this before? We're not to be irrational. We're to be sober-minded, not to lose our heads. We're to be self-controlled. Believers should think sensibly as they contemplate the brevity of life in this world. I grew up in Oklahoma. You feel the brevity of God every time a tornado comes by. The fragility of life. I imagine that people in Florida felt the, the brevity of life when a massive hurricane comes through. You can experience it with a diagnosis. You can experience it with a, someone you know or a neighbor of someone you know gets caught up in depression or mental disease and takes their life. Troubles and worries of this world. This life is brief. Yes. As a 42-year-old, like days are moving quicker now than they did when I was 12. Some of you are laughing because I think it moves faster for you today than it does, does for me at 42. It's over quick. My children, I remember holding them in my arms not so long ago. They passed quick. We are to be sober-minded, not lose our head, but to contemplate the brevity of life in this world, and it should lead us to prayer. The nearness of the end has led some believers again to this irrational act. I don't believe it's what we're called to. Peter is summoning his readers to be clear-minded, self-controlled, to be brought up into prayer. First Peter 4, 8, above all, keep loving one another earnestly, sincerely, constantly, since love covers a multitude of sin. There are people that take this text and a few other texts and mean it, think that it means that we're atoning for people's sin by our love that you can atone for. I believe that that's a dire um, contrast to Scripture. Scripture teaches here, I believe, just like it does in a few other places, that there is something for us in that we are able to, within the church, because the end is near, because of Christ's return is imminent, that we're able to look over the transgressions of one another within the church, that we might be able to see past the sins and remain loving relationship instead of division within the church. is absolutely what is going on here. We are saving our brothers by not getting tangled in every right and wrong of the other individual, but we are in love above all. We are loving one another and so saving our brothers from sin. 
The imminence of the end should provoke believers to love. Keep is a huge word. Keep on loving here. As we see what follows as an imperative, something we must do. Above all, the priority, earnestly, constantly. How long and how often we should do it. We should do it above all, priority, and constantly. 1 Peter 1.22, having purified your souls by the obedience of the truth for sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. We've already discussed this in 1 Peter, that there's a purity to our love, an earnestness to our love. The theme is broached again because love is central in the Christian life. Do you believe that? We are connected by love. Do you remember growing up in, I don't know if y'all grew up SBC, we used to join sometimes on Sunday evening, the hands. And I felt like we were doing Red Rover, Red Rover as a little kid. We would sing, uh, we are one in the bond of love. We have joined our spirit with the spirit of God. Do y'all remember this? No? Some. Testify. All right. Yes. Okay. I grew up in an old high church, um, Southern Baptist. We had an organ. So yeah, if you didn't have an organ, you probably didn't sing that song. Anyway, we used to do that. We'd join hands. And it was so weird as a little kid that was unbelieving because I would be holding hands with a stranger. And I'm singing of this love that we're supposed to have for each other. Right? You taught it in Sunday school. You taught that song? Come on, preach. There you go. So, hey, that is what we're supposed to be doing. That is absolutely the love that we're supposed to have one for another. And it shows itself like when we sit around table and we talk about hard things that are going on in your marriage and how we can pray. Priscilla, Tuesday, going to go to the doctor. We love you. We're going to be praying. Why? We love each other. Jack, we love you. We're going to pray for the next month. That CAT scan comes back and things have shrunk. And your faith has increased. Like, that's our prayer, because we love you. Blaine, we're praying for you because Chris is not here, and we know that that's tough. Right? Like, this, preach. (laughs) She's coming home Tuesday. When is she coming home? Tuesday. Amen. We love each other, and so that's why we're provoked, like, to love each other. And this is why people will join with the church that's nearest to the Bible, nearest to them, is because we need this love. We need this unity above all love. When you think about the brevity of life and that the end is near, the consummation of all things, don't be caught up in worldly things. Pray for each other. Do it in love. One of my favorite things to do is sit down with believers. Matthew, is he in here? If you've never gone and gotten coffee with Matthew, don't tell him I said this. He'll think I like him too much. Um, Go sit down and get coffee, men, with Matthew. And just say, today, while we drink coffee, let's just pray for the church. And he will go by each one of you by name and he'll just pray. Matthew loves this church. You, the individuals, not light in the desert, you, right? That's, and it's not like a five minute prayer. Um, Tony today, 
There's a temptation when we pray for the church to be like, Lord, you know all these things, like even the things that weren't mentioned today, you hear the prayer request, like, you know, we're gonna move on, amen? One by one by one. Like it was joyful to sit down and and pray. Why? It's spurred on by love. This is for the believers. We love because Christ has loved us. We love each other. Love covers a multitude of sins. It looks over. um, For anybody to love me, it means you're looking over some sins. Yes? Point the finger back at you. To love you, I'm looking over sins. We, we agree. <laughs> All right, let's keep on going. Amen. Here we go. So then we go on from verse eight into verse nine, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. I truly believe like some people will take this to be like hospitality that we're supposed to show in this life right now. And they lose what it meant then. I did a lot of studying to find out what this meant to them. Show hospitality in times. What is Peter talking about? The great dispersia has taken place and the hospitality that was being practiced was twofold. There were missionaries, Paul, for example, who talked about hospitality a lot. He was going from city to city to city and he was doing what? He was needing a place to stay. He was needing food to eat. Jesus said, take what you, like, don't, don't go home and put things in your sack. Like, go, there, the believers will be hospitable to you. Well, there is an act of service that we do as as we are concerned about missions and we take on people that are serving in ministry and we're hospitable to them. And there's a time in which it can become tough. If you stay with Paul for two to three years, I'm sure the police start coming around and like you're getting associated with some things and there's a cost to hospitality. And there's a point in which you can start to grumble. I really believe that that's what Peter's talking about here. This hospitality is a hospitality of bringing in those in the church and being hospitable in love to see the service and the ministry and the gospel continue on. Like that is at least what it means. It probably has further meaning, but you and I need to see this. as like what you have does not belong to you. Do you believe that? It is hard to be hospitable if you think it's yours. It is very easy to be hospitable if you understand that it's a gift and you're a steward. Let me make it applicable to today in a way that I think it's very applicable back then as well. Did you know that they did not have beautiful sanctuaries? Where did they meet? In a home. Where did they gather? In a home. Does that mean that the wife was over there cleaning? Oh, they're going to think of me, you know, like, I've got to invite people into the house. And the husband was, you know, setting up extra chairs. Like, we are to exercise our togetherness in our homes. Do you believe that? Or do we just meet here? Like that is what's being talked about. Hospitable means that we bring each other into our lives. We live lives together, that we're hospitable. We find ways that we can drink coffee together in our homes to, I want to bring you into my prayer closet. This is where I pray. This is, this is where I 
Like, this is my home. I want you to see the scriptures that I have on my wall. So that when it says, as for my house, we will serve the Lord. You can come and you can remind me of that. I have the Shema written on one of my walls. The Lord our God is one. You shall love the Lord with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. It is good for you to come into my home and say to my kids, that's our rule at our house as well. It's what we're living for as well. I think that that is definitely something that's an encouragement for us. Can we be hospitable one to another as we are together, like, in this life, because the end is near. Okay, so that's verse nine. Show hospitality to each other. The love continues in verse nine. The love spurs on verse nine. The exhortations are shaped by the nearness of the end and the imperative for us to be hospitable. Lodging could not be afforded. The mission was dependent on the willingness of others to open up. And so that's what they did. I grew up again, my old church, we had a mission home. Do y'all remember mission homes? Missionaries on furlough, they got to come home, have a place. It was a church practicing hospitality. Somebody owned that home. Right? Think of how we could be praying for the hospitality that needs to go on in less places that don't have this. I want to tell you, you go to Asia, you go where the God, this is a must to be practiced. So we should pray for the church globally to be hospitable. Keep on going. Verse 10. How am I doing on time? Sometimes I can go too long. Chase a few rabbits. Y'all forgive me though, right? Here we go. Verse 10. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as God's good steward, God's very grace. So again, I think that this is so impactful and we could just hit this one point and move on today and it'd be good for us. Do you notice that it says, as each has received a gift? Do you know what that means? There is no one in here who doesn't at least have one. Uh Uh-oh. So this is speaking to you. Each of you has a gift. Should you exercise that gift? Absolutely. Each believer has been given at least a gift, if not multiple. So as we read, as each has received a gift, and the word received and the word gift are pointing out two things. You didn't muster it up and it's not yours. You received, it belongs to another, it was granted by another, and a gift meaning you didn't earn it. We're to use it to serve one another. The aim of it is not to receive praise or glory. What are we supposed to do? Use it to serve one another. As God's good stewards of God's varied grace. Do we believe that each of us have the same gift? No. We, the church, are an example of God's varied graces. Brian has different gifts than I do. Regina definitely has different gifts than a lot of us do. Amen? But we're to use our varied graces as God's good steward. 
The theme of ministering to one another continues. The emphasis shifts to the gifts of believers that are received by God's grace. The word gift, charisma, implies that the gift believers have are a result of God's grace. The word received confirms that that's true. Paul used the term charisma, gift, quite often to designate the spiritual gifts. We believe that this is definitely speaking of spiritual gifts. And he's going to go into two different categories here, speaking gifts and serving gifts. Why is this timely for us? We just installed our first deacons who are to serve the church using their gifts. We're a, we're a, a new, young church in our history. We replanted and we're going about installing elders and, and deacons. And so each of us have ministries and, and, and gifts that are given to us for the benefit of the church. Exercise them as good stewards. And God has given them as stewards. Could The word stewards could be translated as manager. Luke 12, Luke 16, Luke does it over and over and over. Titus does it. As long as it is clear that believers hold these gifts in trust, like holding something in trust. Um, Elder wills, trust, probates. You have a bank manager hold something in trust to act on behalf of another. That's what we're doing as, as people with gifts. Like these gifts belong to God and we're being held in trust to operate these gifts for his glory. And so, self-examination, what is your gift? Gifts. How are you using them today for his glory? For some of you, it's prayer. Think of all the different spiritual gifts. Um, I'm going to go few, through a few of them. The idea of the speaking when he talks about the speaking um, gifts, he definitely is talking about those who would prophesy, those who would preach, those who would teach. But then he also has the serving gifts. He's dividing them in two different categories the, of providing meals like Matthew 8, Mark, Luke. There's several of those. Visiting people in prison, providing financial support. Um, he's doing general terms so that we understand all of the gifts are in view here. Like praying is a spiritual gift. Teaching is a spiritual gift. Cleaning the toilets is an act of service and a spiritual gift. How today are you exercising? Yeah, (laughs) some people are like, I don't like that spiritual gift. (laughs) Does the church need people that will clean the toilets? Does the church need people that will, uh, again, I'm going to chase a few more rabbits. First Sunday that we came in, what, three, four years ago now? Jack and Sue are opening the doors, and Lewis and Janice are sitting there um, immediately following after. You, if Y'all don't remember, it was Christina was, hadn't stay home with Theo, and so it was just my girls. And we came in that door, and Lewis, you got down on your knee to talk to my kids that first morning. And Janice, you took them to Sunday school. You grabbed them by the hand and said, let me show you to Sunday school. Is that exercising your gifts? We need people that will open doors. We need people that will get down and talk to children on their knees. And we need ladies that will grab the children by the hand and take them to Sunday school. Amen? Or are we missing? And we also need people that will clean toilets. I'm just joking. We do need people that will 
take after the church. Look over here. You see, see the rain effects? Like, can we let this building be destroyed? God's given some of us gifts to be able to take care of these things. If you need a reminder, walk down the children's hall and see what's happened over the last year. That is the people exercising their gifts. Much paint has been spilt over there. The Murphys have donated hundreds of hours to writing curriculum for our children. Categorizing it, organizing it, so that our kids might know the gospel. An act of service. There is none who is not to serve. Why? The end of all things is at hand. So get busy serving. And it all ends with one glorious doxology. The other thing that we'd sometimes sing, praise God from whom all blessings flow. Remember the doxology? There's more people that remember that one. The doxology can sometimes be, and this is why people have argued in 1 Peter that probably this was the end of 1 Peter. That's what they would say. I disagree. I believe that this is saying, hey, this is the end of the section from 2 to 4, like we're ending a section, and so I just break into doxology. There's other places in Scripture where other writers use doxology in the middle. It doesn't always come at the end of a book. Some people try to argue that the rest of 1 Peter doesn't belong. I disagree. I believe that the author Peter is writing and is caught up so much in thinking about how this is true. He is looking around, and this is the same thing I experienced today. We were in Sunday school, and again, another rabbit. I'm going to do it. We were in Sunday school, and people were listing off prayer requests. One of my least favorite things is when I hear somebody say a prayer request, and you can tell in the way they say it that they haven't even prayed for that prayer request yet. They're like, oh, we should also be praying for Bobby Joe's toe. And you're like, "Mm, have you been praying for that? And so sometimes I'll even say, and if you hear me say this to you, like, it's a normal thing I'll do. How have you been praying for that situation? But in Sunday school, as everyone was listing off their prayer requests, you could tell that every one of them, this is not the first time that they've been praying about this. They were bringing up things that they pray about every single day when we were talking about things to be praying for as a church body. It is beautiful. We were exercised. We were over, like, I broke off into doxology right after that. I was like, amen, praise the Lord. We could end now. Prayer was good. I think that that's what's happening here. He goes through and he's examining the church. And he said, the end is near. We should be sober-minded. We should not be distracted by worldly things. We should be self-controlled and should lead us to prayer. And that's what I see. And we should also think about how we should be hospitable to each other without grumbling. And that's what I see. Oh, and we should serve each other with speaking gifts as if you're speaking the oracles of God, the word of God, the gospel. 
which Peter has gone over several times to examine and to say what the gospel is, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ and what it means for you. He's done it over and over and over through First Peter. And he's saying, I see that happening in hospitality. You're evening opening up your rooms and your homes so that the church could gather and meet and sit under the word. And he's filled up to say, there are spiritual gifts. You are stewards of it. Some speak and some serve and clean toilets. All these spiritual gifts as stewards, and each of you have received one. Praise God through Jesus Christ. Like he goes straight into doxology. He's overwhelmed by the graces of God that leads him to this doxology. Again, read it with me. He says this, in order that everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. Last point, the end is near. So live in a way that in everything, God receives glory through Jesus Christ. And then he goes on to sing the doxology, to him belong glory, dominion forever and ever. And then I love it when they write amen. Do y'all know what the word amen means? Huh? So be it. May it be so. May it be so. My dad taught me that, uh, um, I believe my dad taught me this. I don't know. I'm going to give him credit for it anyway. Most things I give my dad credit for. Um, Amen is when you know that you've said a prayer that is in accordance with the Scripture. Like when you pray the Scripture, you can say, Amen. May it be so. When you, know, when you pray and somebody else is praying and they pray something that aligns with Scripture and they start quoting Scripture in that prayer, you say, may it be so. I agree, may it be so. And I think Peter, like, I mean, he's writing about him. I mean, he's the one who's writing this. And he says, may it be so. I think it shows all of his confidence. And his boldness, he knows that the end of all things is the glory of God through Jesus Christ. And so he can even say to his own prayer, amen, may it be so. So how does this apply to Light in the Desert Baptist Church? We all believe that the end is near, amen? He could return at any time. So we're to hunker down. No. Live active, God-glorifying lives, loving each other. Should we be caught up in the entanglements of like wrongdoing or, you know, they didn't smile at me or they didn't shake my hands or they look too busy? Or should we look over those things full of love, constantly, earnestly looking to see how we should serve and encourage and edify one another. Amen, absolutely. Should we lose our heads about the end time and the brevity of life? No, when we think about the brevity of life, it should sober our minds. That we might be self-controlled and diligent about what we pray for. Pray about the things that matter most. And we should be hospitable. Open up your homes, open up your lives, 
bring the church in. And each of you have received a gift. An analogy. There's a lot of people in the church, not necessarily this church. 42 years of seeing church on display. I've seen a lot of people eat of the buffet and few people are behind the buffet serving it. I think the true picture of a church is a bunch of people on the other side of the buffet looking to serve and the line's really short on those that are eating because we're all ministering using our gifts. We'll be a church of a lot of workers and servers and ministers serving each other as stewards. It's not yours. Not that you'd get credit. Great, great buffet. No, potluck. Um, great, it, it is so that God may receive glory. And that's what Light in the Desert's all about. Yes? The end is near. Suffering, it's short. Let's exercise our gifts. Let's love each other, pray for each other well, be sober-minded. Let's use our gifts. Is it too late to find your gift? No. What is your gift? Start using it now for the benefit and edification of the church. Amen? Let's pray. Gracious Lord, we love you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for how we don't have to add much. um, We don't have to add anything to the text. Uh, It is very clear for us. Lord, I pray that you would help us to be obedient to the imperatives um, by your spirit um, and as we're sanctified to Christ. Lord, I thank you for each of the church uh, members that we can go around the room and look at how they're exercising their gifts for our edification um, weekly. Um, They look for ways to serve. Lord, I pray that we'd continue to do that and more would do that we'd exercise our gifts for the edification of others. Lord, I pray that we would live for your glory through Jesus Christ. And Lord, I pray um, all of this by the blood of Jesus Christ and all of his church say, amen.